we have a food supply chain that is in need of transformation to make it healthier, more sustainable, uh, and more democratic at scale. And I think what the exciting thing for me is we already had some of the best companies in the world, whether it's innovators like Beyond Meat or large agricultural companies like Cargill, they all know we need to transform the food system and make it healthier and more sustainable. I think that will absolutely be a mission uh, coming out of this. This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. We are the beginning of June and my next guest joins me as we are both in quarantine from upstate New York. Uh, Eric Oaken is the Global Head of Consumer Retail Investment Banking at J.P. Morgan, where he has for decades worked and is really at the top of his game when it comes to understanding not just uh, retail and consumer, but how things are moving across the globe, because he is indeed the head of global uh, in this category. So seeing his uh, vantage point is very important to me, and I'm sure you'll find it incredibly interesting as well. So we should really Get started. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the safari during these very strange times. Oh, thanks for having me. Delighted to do it. Um, just to give some signposting to everyone who's listening, and I'm going to jump right in because given your perch, there's lots of things we can touch on. Um, I think the macro global perspective uh, is vital to everyone. Uh, the retail reckoning or the violent acceleration of the things that we all felt were coming, but obviously just arrived very quickly. The private equity landscape, the Amazon and digital landscape, uh, digital native brands. There's a lot of people saying that um, they're out maybe, or maybe they're not so out. And then just the future in general. Uh, we'll bop around all these different areas. But for those of our listeners who don't know you, uh, give us a few minutes on your position and your history there at JP Morgan, where I actually started my career. Well, uh, very quickly, uh, Morty, I think you summarized it well, which is um, I'm currently the head of our uh, global consumer retail investment banking group. Uh, which does everything, works with companies, everything from agriculture, food, personal care companies, uh, all through the value chain, uh, retailers, department stores, um, digitally, uh, native businesses. So we do get to see a really interesting cross-section globally of, uh, of the consumer economy. Uh, I've been at the firm for um, 30 years. Uh, I spent the first uh, 10 years in our equities business uh, and the last 20 years uh, advising and financing consumer retail companies. I don't want to go too much into the COVID situation, but how 
are brands and retailers reacting to the crisis based on how their governments are reacting? You know, what have been some of the differences globally that you've seen, you know, from all of your offices from around the world, depending on the stage at which the crisis has reached their businesses and how their governments have dealt with it? I think both in our own, on our own platform and also with our clients, it, it, you, you've sort of alluded to what the primary issue is, is what point of the crisis um, uh, and, and in terms of infection those regions are in. Um, how they respond to it is very much uh, as it is uh, the way they respond to a lot of things. It's shaped by culture. It's shaped by government organizations. It's uh, shaped by attitudes towards privacy. So to try to compare um, you know, what uh, Yum China or what a luxury company in China is doing uh, to what happens in the United States is, is there are some teachable moments. There's some information we can share with our clients about uh, how to operate uh, under quarantine, supply chain resiliency, uh, some of how to deal with the uh, uh, navigating some of the economic and governmental issues. But the reality is each of these countries, as we knew, have different consumers, different economies, different laws, uh, and different notions of, of privacy. So, um, you know, it's always good to get a global perspective and to benchmark. Um, I think, for example, uh, what's been going on uh, in China and Hong Kong in terms of uh, focus on the problem, social distancing, uh, the use of technology in a way that is almost impossible uh, in countries that have different attitudes uh, towards privacy has been, you know, instructive, I, I think, for many of our companies about how they want to, um, you know, live going forward and how they want to function going forward. But there are many things that are being done in those countries that, that can't be done here. I think the other yeah. thing that's probably different, uh, uh, very different, is the governmental uh, structures. Um, you know, the United States, for example, um, is really four or five countries uh, in terms of regions. Uh, and a lot of the laws that control when you can open, how you can open, uh, are really shaped by states and municipalities. So if you're a global company and one that's functioning in the U.S., who you go to to get information about what you can and can't do is a very different question. So you, you referenced China. And one of our clients for the last 15 years is Scott Malkin's Value Retail, which is the Bista Village shopping collection. And they opened now about five or six weeks ago. They had been shut in Pudong and Suzhou for about six weeks. And remarkably, they are up about 100%, I think, in Shanghai, uh, May over May, and they were 80% up in Suzhou. And actually, year to date, they are up against last year, having been closed uh, for an extended period of time, which is remarkable. Um, so, do you see that in any way as a leading indicator? Uh, yes, they're Chinese consumers, and we know they are uh, absolutely wonderful consumers, but is that a leading indicator for what might happen in the rest of the world? It, it absolutely does. And, and you know, one of the things you find during you know, great global moments or national moments of crisis is there tends to be a lot of, of thinking that unfortunately sounds very similar. Um, and what I see in this crisis is, I think, um, some real empathy. I see people thinking about issues around health, interacting, collective action uh, that are really exciting. But I also see some stuff that I, just troubles me in terms of, I think, people misreading human nature and, and, and the consumer. And what I mean by that is um, the notion that we can now 
all move to Greenwich, Connecticut and conduct everything we do via Zoom, I don't think is realistic. I think there is a strong desire for human interaction. Uh, I think we have been moving to cities for hundreds of years for reasons. Anyone who has any kind of climate agenda, you cannot abandon cities. What you need to do is figure out a different way to work, a different way to operate a restaurant, a different way to use public transportation that is more safe and resilient. Uh, we have been told for 15, 20 years that we were going to have something like this. And the reality is we did not prepare well. Um, very few countries prepared well. And what we hope coming out of the end of this is that we'll realize what it will mean in the consumer economy to have a safe and resilient um, business model and laws that actually allow these businesses to function in a way uh, and meet the demand that I think to your point is there. I was listening the other day to Steve Cohen, who is heading Governor Cuomo's New York Forward initiative. And he reminded everyone on the call that since the dawn of civilization, the shining city on a hill has been what everyone aspires to regardless of where they live. So I believe cities continuing to be important nexus for humanity won't stop. And I just think it's an interesting fact that people are so binary on the subject and the idea that cities will be completely abandoned. Uh, I mean, you and I lived in New York City during September 11th, for example, and everyone was convinced that it would be a hotbed for terrorism and, and for the foreseeable future, which is it was in some regards, and, and there were still outbreaks of terrorism, and it was quite scary for a few years, but nonetheless, it came back, and it always has. Um, so I think other cities of all shapes and sizes, they'll become better equipped uh, and in turn, I think it'll be helpful for new retail. And so moving off of the specifics of the crisis, but and how it applies to retail, I think is important. Um, are you, you are obviously the custodian of all those relationships across the board at JP Morgan. I'd like to talk about new retail through the lens of omni-channel. And you know the media value of retail, the, the marketing value of retail, the concentration of retail in the right environments. And how, how are you seeing retail from its largest big boxes to you know, more digital native brands that are newer on your radar? And how do you see them accelerating things and uh, that were maybe already on the boardroom table, which otherwise might have taken five years, but it happened quicker now? You know, <laughs> we have three hours. Uh, it, no, it, uh, it's exactly the right question. So, you know, I think, Morty, you said something at the beginning, which I think is important, which is, this crisis accelerates a number of things that have been going on already. Um, the notion that in large swaths of the developed world that we are overstored, uh, I think, is going to be obviously completely accelerated. But in the U.S. alone, uh, you know, we've been running at sort of 6,000 store closures or so. Probably we thought we we're going to peak at 9,000 and probably be about 15,000 this year. Every retailer that we work with in most uh, of the economies that they, that they uh, uh, trade in are seeing a smaller footprint, smaller box, and a box that needs to be reconfigured in some way. Uh, in the case of specialty retail, um, you know, if you look at the, at, at the model that you have there, a lot of the labor, a lot of the rent is part of the debate and, and, and what's on the table now. How can I reconfigure at lower volumes? Um, something that actually replicates the sort of four-wall EBITDA that I had before, which was probably in the low you know, teens percent. 
that is going to be for a number of companies that were already under pressure from whoever the, the boogeyman was in their, in their world, whether it was fast fashion, whether it was outlets, whether it was uh, the growth of e-commerce, the ones that have been functioning well and that will survive have been doing five or six things correctly in the past. They had a brand proposition that people cared about and that they felt some emotional connection to. Uh, blinding glimpse of the obvious, but, but important. These are the companies that if they went away, you would miss them. And there are whole swaths of retail where if you heard XYZ closed, no one really, there's not a constituency of people go, my life has been changed in the fundamental. Secondly, the investment in technology, whether it's uh, through loyalty, e-commerce, uh, in-store capabilities, you knew you needed to do more of that. And that capability became actually a lifesaver uh, and kept the lights on for many of these businesses uh, you know, throughout the crisis. I do not believe, Morty, to your point, that most of these retailers will discover that suddenly they were doing 15, they spiked to 13% of their volume, and now they can do 70% of their volume uh, you know, online. I don't think uh, most of these brands or companies are set up that way. But those companies that had all three or four of those capabilities, I think, will survive uh, in a smaller footprint uh, globally. The bigger box is more challenging. Um, you know, they had more existential issues. Uh, we had seen every year uh, more closures and repurposing of the large box uh, real estate department stores. Um, there were some interesting things that I think were going on that will be accelerated through this. Um, there were a number of these companies, like the Nordstrom's of the world, that actually had historically a very good digital business, well executed and something that was part of the corporate DNA. I think that will continue to get used and augmented in the department store space. You were seeing experimentation with smaller formats and different models in a weird sort of way, uh, going back to the original founding of department stores uh, with more of a concession model, uh, bringing in, uh, you know, in the case of a Kohl's, a, a Lidl or an Aldi, uh, in the case of uh, Nordstrom's, some doing some very interesting things uh, with uh, local retailers um, and, and, and local preferences. Um, so I think that gets accelerated as well. But I do mm -hmm. think a large part of the department store segment gets completely repurposed. There are some groups trying to make the case for a digital radius clause, which would imply that a real estate developer is investing hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in these huge shopping environments, and therefore now seeking credit for the fact that if a customer does come and walk through the shopping center and see the brand, but live within a certain radius, that they should be able to audit the digital business uh, of that brand. Um, I think it's a little bit of a hard sell, but do you think um, that could start to get traction? Or is that something that um, you feel maybe a bit far-fetched for the time being? I don't think it feels far-fetched. I, I think it, it sounds like a, a, a difficult proposition to roll out. What I do think is in what you're saying, there is an element of where the world is probably going to go. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think using technology in some ways to level the playing field. Um, you know, we're sitting here talking about you know, large mall owners, large box retail. The reality is in large swaths of, of the countries we work in, retail is a small business. 
So, you know, we need to figure out ways to use technology through payment systems, through um, uh, uh, more resilient supply chain enabled technology to actually allow those companies to participate in a more balanced way. The other issue you allude to with, with these large mall owners is there is an instability now uh, between the expectations of how the companies were financed and built and what retailers can actually provide in the intermediate term and probably over the longer term. So that rebalancing, uh, whether it's through, through technology, whether it's through uh, some reconfiguration and more partnership of what their leases look like, that's got to happen because yeah. uh, the stress to the system is too strong. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. So let's try and reconcile two things that are on your resume, which I think are really interesting. Global being the one word and retail being the other. So I found historically, I've actually been at times frustrated by the American brand community. And I say this with obviously with love and affection. I'm American, even though I don't sound it and have acted in the rather, I, I think that the American businesses have sometimes acted in a rather provincial manner towards globalization. I would say that even J. Crew and yeah, Victoria's Secret, um, frankly, refused to go international for decades, um, at least because they felt they had enough on their plate here. And they uh, may have been right at that moment in time. But I think um, today, uh, I think they might have felt differently about that had they gone a bit quicker. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily you know, uh, the same thing uh, about department stores, but, you know, it's harder to do for them. But how do you see a retail environment in the United States, historically, historically uh, absent a few like Gap and maybe a handful of others, have really not become true global players like Inditex or H&M? Um, even the French and Italian luxury players have been global for decades. The Americans tend to be happy here. So do you feel that some of these bankruptcies have at part of their root, maybe a history of companies not being global enough, um, being content with being in the shining country on the hill as, as we are here. And even after 2008, they, you know, when the ceiling came down a bit, they really didn't act fast enough to try and do things differently and act differently. Is there any learnings there? Yeah, no, it's a fascinating question. So I, 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 I think it's a function of three or four things. Uh, the first is uh, what you alluded to before, the scale of this market. This is, you know, you've got 70% of uh, GDP in this country or human consumption. So the idea um, of a company needing to go somewhere else over the last 20, 30 years, it fit, it fit a very small group of people. Um, and so the reality is, um, you know, you were, when you made your big move as an American retailer, you're like, I'm going international, I'm going to Canada, or I'm going to Mexico. Um, what then happened was because we have the robust capital markets that we do, 
there were a lot of business models and companies in retail that were funded that were not earning their cost of capital. So how did we get so overstored? Because we were actually in the debt and equity markets funding companies that weren't generating values for their investors or their shareholders. So that was sort of allowed to happen. I'd say that the third reason was American management teams tended to be, um, by background, pretty insular, pretty U.S. focused, um, did not get the international training that you would um, at a European company. So if you were a, a hotshot at, you know, Macy's or, or pick your large company in, in the 80s or 90s, um, you know, opening up a foreign market was not part of your DNA or, or mission. You compare that to a Tesco or someone, whoever your peer was in Europe, you were sent to open up Taiwan. You were sent to open, so you had management teams that while they may be from a particular country origin, had more international experience and they're more comfortable doing it. So um, those are the first couple of things. And then I think lastly, to your point, the will they have to look at this now? Yes, I think so. Um, there are certain models that we have that do translate well. We do have generations of management teams who have more experience. They're probably not as international as some of uh, their European uh, peers. Um, I think the challenge for the U.S. companies will be in the developed markets, you actually have the, the sort of national champion in each category who's been defined. And you can go through in the department store space, you can go in the, in the hypermarket space. So you're entering a market that's already pretty tough. And in the case of emerging markets, you not only have a lot of your major international competitors either trying to compete with you there, trying to compete with the local competition having pulled out because they haven't been able to make money. There's been as much exiting of some of these emerging markets as there has been entry. And then you have strong local champions. And the challenge, I think, with many of the emerging markets, particularly in Asia, is they are skipping whole phases of retail. So... Um, you know, they've sort of looked at department stores, for example, and said, those are interesting. I understand why you had those, but I'm going to, through this digital enabling technology I have, I'm going to completely skip that. I think there's something to it, Morty, but I think it's a very challenging proposition right now for anyone to do it. Then the other the thing to layer into that could be a casualty of COVID is how do we feel about the globalization of um, our economic system? How do we feel about global sourcing? How do we feel yeah. about our own brands versus other people's brands, which, you know, is, is one of the, the tougher questions coming out the other end. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. You referenced the homegrown guys in these markets. And so, you know, we, we referenced the term, the rise of the rest. And there's an amazing book by Fareed Zakaria, who's, you know, the famous uh, CNN GPS guy. Um, and he wrote this book, which is sort of a an inflammatory name, but I think it, by design, just to get attention, it's called the, the post-American world. But in no means is it meant to be the decline of America. It just means that the rise of the rest. And I think sometimes certain brands, maybe more today than three or four years ago, have arrived in these markets and realized in India and Russia and the Middle East and these amazing homegrown companies who have built themselves on the backbones of learning from the international companies that they had franchised into their territories. And they say, you know, uh, what I'm just going to do it myself now, you know, not pay any royalty. And I know my you know, customer better than they do. Um, I'll put my name on it. And um, you've got an incredibly powerful local player who 
who now finds themselves um, starting to actually be the new strategics. Uh, they want to go and buy brands in the West and act as a new ecosystem of players out there. So do you find that in your sort of new buyer universe, maybe? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we're seeing some of these in a bunch of categories in um, accessories, in athletics, uh, in even in food, obviously for different reasons. But we're seeing large local players now looking back at the United States, looking at Europe, looking at Latin America, saying, um, I'm actually going to be the acquirer as opposed to uh, what I may have been thinking about two or three years ago or five or six years ago being a licensee. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, to some degree, this story is about where's the capital. And I think, you know, right now the capital is... Uh, uh, accumulated and poised uh, uh, to pounce. I think in, in some, and by the way, it's not just China. It's, um, you know, I, I think you can see Korean companies doing this. I think uh, Japanese companies where there's a fair amount of capital and not a lot of growth. Um, so that's what I think would be an unfortunate casualty of COVID would be for us to, you know, throw globalization out with some of the benefits uh, out with the bathwater rather than saying, we need to think a little bit more about, you know, championing our local industries. We need to think about supply chain. We need a global inclusive consumer culture that respects people's brands and ideas. To me, that could be the, the exciting thing that comes out of this uh, with some, some, some leadership and some good thinking. So the private equity landscape um, coming into this uh, recession or COVID situation uh, had trillions of dollars sitting on, on the sidelines. So, as these guys are looking at the landscape today, they're either going to be looking at distressed businesses uh, or um, trying to really focus on the companies that are thriving. So, you know, we got lucky enough to buy a company a year and a half ago named Signature Brands, which is in the cake decorating business. And, you know, we were obviously planning for being at the top of the economic cycle, but we you know, didn't expect everyone being locked at home baking cookies and, and decorating cookies with their kids either. So, you know, that business is up, you know, 50% in some categories. And, you know, on the other hand, you have the restaurant industry that, you know, has been obviously decimated in some areas, uh, depending on where you are. So as you're as an investor, where are you, where are you looking? How do you assess uh, as a private equity um, company looking at this uh, landscape through the lens of the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. Uh, so you're right that there is a tremendous amount of private equity um, on the sidelines that could be deployed in, in thoughtful ways. Um, and I, I would not only just, you know, flag the, you know, conventional bio community, the venture capital community, who all been very active in consumer retail over the years. Um, but you've also got other pockets that make that even larger. You've got uh, sovereign wealth funds who are active investors in the space. Increasingly, you have family offices doing things. So what the good news is there is this private pool of capital that depending on the, 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 the sector and the situation can be deployed in an appropriate way to try to change some of this stuff. What we are seeing is a couple of, of consistent themes when we talk to that, that universe. Um, number one is the last couple of months have really been about their own portfolios. Um, and so all these questions we've had about, um, you know, how do I reopen my restaurant company? How do I think about consolidation? How do I think about my supply chain? 
they have been in a, ma- a massive sort of hurry up offense exercise uh, to make sure everything was okay at home. They are now starting to transition the conversation to uh, a couple of things thematically. Uh, generally, the better firms are saying, you know, I don't believe in anything fundamentally different than I did before. I'm not suddenly going to turn into a food service investor if I've never invested in food service. But if I believe that five or six things were going to happen with the consumer and with retail, where does this experience and, and what comes out of COVID, where does that accentuate that theme? What I'm also saying is, uh, if I'm in the private equity community is, and I'm probably going to start with places I've been before. What are the companies that I know? What are the sectors that I know? So you can see that with you know KKR's investment in U.S. food service. Uh, you will see that with a lot of these firms partnering on things that they wanted to buy before and lost out on to another partner. So they're thinking about all of that. Um, there has not been as much um, pipe activity, private investment in, in public companies as we thought. Not as much buyout activity yet, because I think that comes later. Part of what's happening, Morty, particularly in the U.S., is the equity, debt, and, and convertible markets have been so robust. The biggest competition, if you're at a large buyout firm, is not a large buyout firm, but public convert investors and public equity investors. So as long as that market continues to function well, there may not be uh, as, as much opportunity. What they're also trying to get their hands around in retail and, and, and restaurants is how do you come up with something systemic for a fragmented industry? Uh, and what I mean by that is if you have, you know, the vast majority of retail and restaurants are small businesses, uh, which they are in this country, um, you know, and you're looking at, you know, 17, 18% of GDP, You've got some of the uh, most vulnerable workers in the world in terms of um, either the, these are the people that, you know, Andrew Yang were worried we were going to be out of jobs based on technology. And we're sort of starting to see what that would look like. They're trying to figure out other ways to deploy their capital as structured in some sort of a systemic solution. Um, and so it's probably some of the most interesting conversations we've had, you know, via Zoom over the last couple of months and uh, more to come. The private equity community is obviously going to be assessing the landscape, but what about the strategics? I feel that the large CPG companies, um, Hershey, Pepsi, P&G, they've been buying their innovation for years, but I haven't seen that happening as much in the broader retail landscape. What do you think about the strategics and you know digital natives coming together? So um, the strategics, absolutely. Um, I think they're part- portions of the consumer retail universe that are still in liquidity crisis mode. I can't afford to do anything. I just need to manage what I have. And that's, you can imagine who those brands and companies are. The regular way M&A conversation with some of the bigger, more well-capitalized strategics started much quicker than I thought. Um, and you haven't seen a lot of transaction activity, but you know, based on our conversations, you are starting to see exactly what you said, Morty, which is, I realized I knew I needed these capabilities and who has them and how can I either, um, you know, organically build them or in many cases acquire them. If I were uh, someone in that situation right now, I would watch what Walmart has done over the last four to five years. Um, what they've done with jet uh, and what they've done in India is really interesting in the sense that the challenge for these companies that are public companies to have the courage to say, 
I'm going to actually pay a, a very aggressive multiple compared to my own multiple, deploy billion dollars worth of capital to better compete with digitally native companies and continue to be relevant to our customer, takes a lot of strategic courage. You do not have a lot of great stories yet in the public markets of quote unquote traditional incumbent companies being able to effectively pull that off. I think Walmart is absolutely the gold standard and should give people some confidence to do that. So to your point, I do think what we're also seeing is we've had really interesting conversations with digitally native companies where they've sort of said, okay, I'm an discretionary business. I am surviving through this, but you know, my, my volumes are getting hit. I now know what it feels like to have one channel uh, with my customer. I know there are capabilities and capital that I need that may be better set up for me if I'm on another platform rather than doing another round. So I think there's going to be some really interesting, potentially what I'll call sort of, you know, uh, marriages between digitally native brands that are big ideas with real customer base with traditional platforms that they respect. And what I like about this this batch of entrepreneurs, Morty, is that they're realistic about what they're good at and what they've created and what they've changed, but they're also respectful of some of the qualities that some of the better branded companies have in a way that I did not experience in the late 90s, where if you didn't get it, you know, if you were ever in the Procter & Gamble training program, you didn't get it. So as we start to wrap this up, um, the future uh, is something that none of us can truly predict, but we tend to finish off this safari with um, talking about with our guests, you know, where the rays of sunlight may be. And obviously, people love to focus on the negative, And I think the negative uh, is too frequently overshadowing logic and data. But from your perspective, give us a few things that you're looking at that give you pause uh, for hope, uh, encouragement, and really, uh, the last word is yours. Morty, I think the things um, that give me hope is I think that that the empathetic re reaction that will happen to in the consumer economy about thinking, I'm going to continue to consume, but what is it that I'm going to consume and how am I going to do it is going to be much more of an existential question or important question than it probably has been in the past. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's going to affect a what number of areas. Um, Number one, you know, I'm personally very focused on food. And I think the, 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 the story that I'm going to see coming out of this, I hope, in terms of food and health, is that people realize this crisis started uh, based on the search for protein in some way, way, shape, or form, that we have a food supply chain that is in need of transformation to make it healthier, more sustainable, uh, and more democratic at scale. And I think what the exciting thing for me is we already had some of the best companies in the world, whether it's innovators like Beyond Meat or large agricultural companies like Cargill, they all know we need to transform the food system and make it healthier and more sustainable. I think that will absolutely be a mission uh, coming out of this. I think there'll be more focus on uh, stakeholder capitalism. Uh, we as a firm, uh, including our, our leader, Mr. Diamond at the business uh, roundtable, have been pushing this and I think the drumbeat around what you need to do in terms of uh, ESG is going to get even louder. There's some yes. really interesting things that are being done at some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, uh, the Unilevers of the world, the LVMHs to do really interesting stuff there. I think the enabling nature of technology now is incredibly exciting. Uh, what we can learn 
in, 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 in industries and segments that value creativity, marrying creativity and data and technology is super exciting to me. Um, you know, and we're seeing that again around, you know, some of the stuff that you know, LVMH is doing blockchain is all super exciting to me. Um, so those I would say are, are, are the main, main things that, that we're focused on, but I think you will have out of this a more sustainable, more inclusive, more dynamic uh, consumer economy, which whether it involves the right people on the board, whether it involves consumers, um, you know, as Gloria Steinem would say, uh, your checkbook reflects your values, investing in companies and buying from companies. We understand the supply chain, where things come from, how, how it was made. I think that's all uh, exciting. There is a very tough period of restart that you have to get through. Uh, consumers damaged, they're feeling, uh, you know, particularly put out. Uh, they've generally lost a loved one or know someone. So the notion that you're going to go out and start consuming uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in tremendous volume is probably optimistic. But I do think uh, it will come back and I think uh, it will be the kind of things that we were talking around around retail and technology. Um, and the good news is that we're about to have a, a generational baton pass in terms of purchasing power from uh, the boomers uh, to younger generations. And I think they have a focus on all these things and, and will drive much of it and uh, ignore them, uh, consumer and retail companies at your peril. JP Morgan's Global Head of Consumer and Retail Investment Banking, Eric Oaken, thanks for joining me on the safari. Thank you for having me. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.